Hi there, I'm Eric Wordweaver Shervin, Gothi of the Ridgar Folk here in East Texas, and I would like to welcome you to The Raven's Call. This is a show where I ramble on about different heathen-related subjects, just kind of whatever strikes my fancy sets my mind on fire at the time. Big UPG warning at the beginning of the episode, like always. Uh, this is just one Gothi's point of view, my, my interpretation of the world around me, my worldview. It doesn't even necessarily reflect the views of my tribe as a whole. It's simply just the way that I see the world, and I hope that it is at least a conversation starter for people. I do not count myself as an authority on anything. Uh, these, I'm not the end-all be-all on anything. It's just some points of view that hopefully will help people think about things in a different way, open up some conversations, or, you know, just get you thinking about stuff that normally you aren't thinking about and help you grow your own views of heathenry and develop your own worldview as you exist in Midgard today. So, all my contact information is down below. Please hit thumbs up on the video. Helps me track what people are enjoying and what they're not. Uh, obviously, by the view numbers and the thumbs up on them, uh, people enjoyed the last video on symbolism and Thor's hammers within heathenry. Um, that was one that I'd had sitting in the docket for a while, so I was excited to get that one out to everybody. So I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. So definitely send in requests to any of the contact information down below. I do utilize viewer requests for a lot of my content. I enjoy those more than trying to pull something out of thin air because y'all will ask questions that I won't necessarily think about when I'm going through and building my docket and it will frequently lead to deeper and better videos than just me pulling something out of thin air um, unless I've got a particular mind fire going at the time and then you know <laughs> I'll run with what what I've got going there so please contact all that's down below the PO box is down there if you want to send anything in letters pictures whatever uh, if you do send anything in I will try to show it on the channel uh, obviously nobody sent anything in, in a while so you haven't seen anything there but I do do that when I get an opportunity anyway onwards and upwards onto today's subject now today's subject is a write-in oh oh hold on before that we hit 10,000 views on Heathenry 101. I've been talking about it for a little while here as it slowly ticked its way up there. But we broke 10,000 views on that video not too long ago. And it's got something like 515 upvotes. Now, I know that's not necessarily representative of anything other than it's got a clickbaity title, um, which was not intentional. I didn't really mean for it to be clickbaity. Uh, but then when I realized later on, it's total clickbait. And uh, so the, the views don't show people sticking through the video all the way through. Um, and the thumbs up definitely don't reflect a lot of people going, oh, this is amazing. Uh, I get that. But still, it's cool to have a video that's hit 10,000 views. So anyway, there we go. On to the subject now. Uh, this is a viewer request. This was one that was put in uh, by the Almighty Picket, who has actually interacted with me a great deal. So shout out to Almighty Picket out there. Uh, you're awesome. I always love your interactions. You've got great things to say. Uh, she's going through and binging my channel at the moment, which is... <laughs> It's a weird thing whenever anybody tells me they're binging my stuff, because I don't really think of myself as binge-worthy watching, but hey, cool, thank you. I appreciate it, really do. Um, so the question that she came up with uh, in a follow-up to one of my, my videos on Cosmic Time and whatnot is, is Balder alive or is Balder dead? <sighs> That's a question that I get a lot and it's one that doesn't have a simple answer. It is one that is a question that has multiple layers to it. 
and it depends on how you view things. So the only thing that I can talk about is from my own experience, my own philosophy, the way that I view the world. And in so doing, I will try to explore a little bit of that today. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand how I see uh, divine or sacred time and space operating. Go back and watch my videos on those and you will be able to see a little bit more what I've got going on there you know, as far as that thought process goes. But the gods exist in a time and space that is separate, wholly separate from our own. It does not operate by the same rules. It does not operate by the same progression. Um, divine logic is different because it is greater, larger, uh, grander in scope than what we can even comprehend because we are a limited part of something created by the sacred. So they're up here, we're right down here. So the idea here is that time does not work the same for the gods. When it comes to mythical time, the way I see mythical time working is that mythical time has been, will be, and always will be. The myths exist in a time outside of time, and when you are entering into sacred time and sacred space, it's wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. You are jacking into the matrix, uh, the divine matrix, as it were, and you are connecting with this sacred time through your sacred space, through your ve, through your hulf, whatever it is that you're working with. And when you do this, you are sharing in sacred time, sacred space. That's why boundaries around your area are so important, because it gives a fixed space for this to coalesce, for it to create this sacred space within the profane. And I've done videos on the whole boundaries and my well idea and all of that as far as sacred time, sacred space, within a ritual goes. Mythic time, when you're, when you're touching into it, mythic time is not the same as ours. We have a problem because we want to think about everything from the point of view of where we are now because we are limited and that is the way that we will instinctively look at. Human beings are intrinsically egocentric, um, not in a bad way but simply that this is our frame of reference. This is, we think about things in terms of human. We think about the world around us in terms of uh, the way humans interact with it. We think of, you know, that's one of the things that I have found with working with the Vaitir is breaking out of that mold of that, that human egocentricity wherein we try to, we try to put a template of human interaction on interacting with something that is inhuman. It is not, human in its interaction style, it is not human in its understanding, in anything about it. So you step back and you try to think about things more from their point of view. And it is something we are completely capable of doing. In psychology it's what we call a heuristic, which is a primed neural pathway that is an automatic math for the brain. You automatically make some assumptions when you look at something, some instant codifications, some uh, instant observations that codify things in a way that the brain can rapidly and easily work with it. This is where we get a lot of things like uh, racial biases come from heuristics that have been both culturally uh, developed and instilled in us and in just general like one-on-one -on -one learned behaviors at home. But these are neural pathways that are primed. We do it with all kinds of things. It is just the automatic functioning of the brain. A snap decision that's not even a conscious cognitive thing. It just happens. So, and that's, that's heuristic. 
uh, H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C, in case anybody wants to go look it up. But heuristics are these just automatic assumptions that the brain makes. We do that with everything. Uh, so when humans interact with the inhuman, the natural heuristic is to assume humanity in what we are dealing with because that is our basis of comparison. That is our starting point. We have to actively think and actively work to go beyond that and to think outside of what is the normal heuristic. We have to apply active thought in order to break the mold and think outside the box. Think of the heuristic as the box, and thinking outside the box means breaking the heuristic and going out and thinking in a different way. We do this when we do any sorts of, of psychological growth because comfort comes from the heuristic. That is where the brain reaches its homogeneity, where it reaches a common point and is comfortable. Comfort comes from heuristics. Breaking out of a heuristic causes cognitive dissonance, which creates discomfort in the brain. People don't like change. People don't like to think outside of the heuristic because it takes active thought, it takes longer, and it takes applied logic as well as the ability to look at something from another point of view. It can be done. We do it all of the time, whether we realize it or not. We are constantly reevaluating heuristics and recalibrating those heuristics based on new information that we get on a daily basis. We regrade and recodify those automatically in the brain. Uh, it's kind of like the computer in a car that learns your driving habits and adjusts the oxygen and you know gas levels and everything like that. Uh, it's, it's similar to that. Our brains automatically do the math on this and start to adjust those heuristics based on our experiences and insights. So if we let go of the heuristic of assuming human interaction and human point of view with everything, we begin to see the sacred in a different point of view. We begin to look at the sacred in as best we can, understanding their point and their time. They are extra planar beings. They are beings that are well beyond our plane of existence. They're not bound by our physics. They're not bound by our time. They are completely and wholly separate. They are other. It is easier for humans to see the gods in human form because of the heuristics, because of the need to reduce cognitive dissonance and put something in an approachable form. That is why we frequently will apply humanoid appearance to the gods. The gods are not necessarily bound by these forms, hence some of the shape-shifting that we see, especially when dealing with stories regarding Loki, or with some of the Shaith work and things like that that we see in the lore. This mobility of form hints at the fact that they are, again, other, unlike us who are landlocked into our form until we step out into other space through magic dealings and things like that. Because of this difference, we can then begin to look at their time and understand that when we are entering into and connecting with sacred time and sacred space, we are connecting to different points in the sacred timeline because it's not really a line. Uh, humanity functions on a line. Mythic time always is, always was, and always will be. 
at any given time when you connect to the mythic time, when you connect to sacred space and sacred time, you can connect to these different points in mythic existence. You can tap into Olden on the tree. You can tap into Olden when he is sacrificing his eye. You can tap into Thor in his many escapades. You can tap into Thor at home. These are where we get the multiple venues of the gods. And there are things within their timeline that we do not have surviving in the lore. These are only the points that we have an understanding of because they were written down and they survived. We have new things that we are developing all the time. One of the things that I saw a request for on one of the videos, and it's not something that's super easy for me to do a video on, so I'll just do a shout out to this particular request right now, is a call out to do modern mythology. I've done a little bit of this myself in my book, The Saga of Bjorn Thorolfsson, uh, with interactions therein as far as kind of a folklore element of things, but I have done some stuff on the side. Uh, you can go and watch the video that I have up in my Weaving Words section called Odin and the Charred Grove, which is a mythic form of the rebirth of heathenry today. It's in poetic form and kind of sort of, it's a prose section, but still. It's an interesting telling of the tree of heathenry coming back to life after burning out. And I like to think of it as kind of a, a an homage to the rebirth of heathenry today and this new life that we're seeing breathed into it by the current generations. So. Yes, I would love to see people do more of that, write more of these stories, their interactions, their understandings, and go with that. As far as actual mythology, what we have is what has survived. And some of that started out in the exact same way uh, as far as being written by someone inspired by their understanding of the gods. And there's a great deal that we can learn from those. Um, we also have to understand that not everything in those stories that survive as the mythology are necessarily uh, canon mythology. I mean, they're canon now because they've been accepted by it, but there are things that were written later uh, and some things that are obviously written for comedic form, such as uh, the theft of Thor's hammer when he dresses up as Freya and goes to get his hammer back uh, with Loki. These are meant to be comedic stories that are not necessarily in keeping with the rest of the mythology, which deals largely with identification of the world around us and the building of the world and the story of the gods. This is more anecdotal in nature. But still, nonetheless, it has become ingrained in the mythology and is there. It is a, a story that we pull to, and it is interesting in that it personifies Thor's moments of rage and some complexities of his character, as well as introducing some humorous elements. So keep all these things in mind. So when we're tapping into sacred time and sacred space, we're tapping into these different times within the mythology. It is a fluctuating thing. It is not necessarily a timeline, more a nebulous cloud of mythology. And when we tap into those things, because they're not given time frames, that is a great thing about mythology is that there's not dates, there's not hard, sequences of events except for in certain instances and those give us that nebulous nature of sacred time because it is nebulous it is not something that is hard ingrained it is something that defies our understanding of time and logical progression so 
in doing this, when we tap into these, we see that different points and different facets of the gods are there uh, available to us at all times whenever we tap into their presence. They are what they have always been and what they will always be. So the mythology has occurred, is occurring, and will always occur. When you tap into the mythology, when you're tapping into sacred time and sacred space, you can tap into a point where Baldur is alive. You can tap into a point where Baldur is already dead. Now keep in mind too, this hinges heavily on your acceptance of Ragnarok in its theory. If you are one that accepts the idea of Ragnarok, as it is laid out in the lore, then yes, uh, you can tap into pre and post Death of Baldur, and those are energies that you can work with when you are doing ritual. Just depends. Now, typically when I am working a ritual, I am tying into just the essence of the god, which means I am tying into uh, I'm just connecting with the entity itself, uh, but sometimes I may utilize imagery or excerpts from the lore, things like that, that pull to a particular aspect of the god uh, in order to bring out that particular part of their persona to influence whatever it is I'm doing. Case in point, when I'm dealing with Odin, uh, I may want to tap into some of Odin's more war warlike elements if I am dealing with something uh, that is more needing victory, needing that primal essence to it. I may be tapping into Odin on Lichgarf when I need guidance, when I need wisdom. I may, when seeking wisdom, seek out Odin by Mimir's well and ask him what Mimir is whispering to him. These kind of things. Um, it's Olden that I'm talking to at all times, but it's pulling from these different elements of Olden and these different mythical points. They always are, always will be, and always were. So, when you start talking about is Baldur alive, is Baldur dead, when we're talking in our current timeline, it's inappropriate really to think of it in that point because we're giving in to the human heuristic of thinking from human point of view. We're not thinking from the sacred time and sacred space. Baldur is the death and rebirth god. In order to have the fullness of his ability, the fullness of his purview, he is the god that dies. He is the god that is reborn. He is the god of light. He is light taken to the underworld. He is all of these things in one. It is all Baldur. And when you tie into Baldur, you can pull from these different elements. One of the things that comes to my mind whenever I'm talking about, you know, the death of Baldur and whether Baldur is alive or is not, is kind of like Schrodinger's cat. If you're not familiar with Schrodinger's cat, I will give you a very, very brief breakdown of that. Schrodinger, or Schrodinger, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, I always grew up calling him Schrodinger, but that's because I read his name as opposed to ever hearing it pronounced. I'm still to this day not 100% certain whether it's Schrodinger or Schrodinger. It depends on who you're talking to at the time. Everyone says it the way they say it, and they are firmly convinced that they are correct. Firmly convinced. So <laughs> I will get people to say, it is definitely this way. And they'll, uh, somebody else will be like, no, it's definitely this way. And I'm like, that doesn't help me. Anyway, so Schrodinger's cat, or Schrodinger's cat, is a, an, a, it's an explanation of quantum physics. You place a cat in a box, and there's different versions of this, but I place a cat in a box, and you close the box up, there's no air holes in it, and you leave the box for a certain period of time. You're trying to discern at any given time, is the cat alive, is the cat dead? And you don't know. You don't know. All you know is that there is a mathematical probability whether or not the cat is alive or dead at this point in time. 
but it is never a certainty. When you are dealing with Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger's cat, you are dealing with a cat that is, now there's a 20% chance this cat is dead. Well, that means there's an 80% chance this cat is alive. Well, there's a 60% chance that this cat is dead, and there's only a 40% chance that this cat is alive. But there's never a 100% chance that he is alive or dead because you cannot confirm it. Now, in dealing with quantum physics, this deals with the inability to completely nail down uh, the state and location of quantum particles and instead dealing with probabilities and location, etc., etc. It, it's a long thing. But as it applies to this, we're dealing with the fact that you do not know whether or not the cat is alive or dead until you open the box. The moment you open the box, it could have been 10 days that this cat is in the box, and you open the box and the cat is dead. Well, the cat was alive. It was like 0.03% alive until you open that box. At that point in time, the cat became dead, dead, 100%, because that is when you confirmed it. Similarly, if you open the box thinking the cat is dead and you see the cat is alive, then the cat is now 100% alive, even though he was only 20% alive 10 seconds ago. And the idea is that because you cannot know specifically, because it is nebulous in nature, it's wibbly, it's wobbly. So, when we're dealing with Balder, uh, Balder's like Schrodinger's God. It is, is Balder dead? Is Balder alive? Well, he's both at the same time. It's just which kind of side of it are you on at the time? And unlike the mathematical probability due to progression of time and logical progression of the cat, uh, it is a constant flux. And it is both things at the same time. Balder is alive and Balder is dead at the same time because mythic time coexists when you tap in to you know dead balder time then you know balder is dead in that moment if you're tapping into balder alive then you are tapping into balder is alive at the moment balder is an entity as we see in the mythology balder continues to be an entity even in hell's hall and is reborn later on according to the mythology anyway and he is still a an interactive entity the gods go down and demand Balder back, and of course they go around and uh, Loki in the guise of the old woman refuses to weep for Balder and therefore locks Balder in Hell's Hall until the fall of the gods Ragnarok, and then Balder comes back with uh, you know, the, the new dawning age, etc. etc. Uh, again, there is a lot of stuff going on with the Ragnarok mythology. Uh, what we have extant today is heavily influenced by Christian mythology in the later parts. Um, the author of the Voluspa, a wonderful article, uh, does a good breakdown on the likelihood of who the author of the Voluspa was, where it probably originated from, and what the poem essentially means as this person is watching uh, the death of their gods and their culture and the birth of this new god, and he's having to reconcile all of that within his brain as life just continues on. But all of that imagery and mythology came from somewhere. And so he creates his own thing, tells his own story, um, which means some of the details of the Ragnarok story may not be accurate. But I think a lot of core things he did pull from the mythology. And the story in its essence does have some mythological basis. 
but that's just me. Different people will differ. Some people write it off completely uh, because it is tainted, but then if you write that off because it's tainted, you pretty much have to write everything off because it's tainted. Uh, you couldn't even touch Beowulf as a, a heathen story, even though it is heathen. You can go through and just omit all of the stupid little, you know, epithets that are put in there about Christianity, and all of a sudden you see uh, this this heathen hero story uh, that is Beowulf. And so, yeah, nothing's pure anymore. So we work with what we have, and we go from there. So in answer to your question, Almighty Picket, yes, Baldur is alive. Yes, Baldur is dead. He's both at the same time. It's, uh, like I said, it's a many-layered and complicated story, but it is something that garners attention and understanding. Because a lot of people ask me, do we live in a pre- or post-Ragnarok world? And my answer to that is, one, do you give credence to Ragnarok? And if you do, then we go on to the next point of logic, and that is, are you assuming, because of human heuristics, that this follows a natural timeline according to humanity and the bounds that we are in? This is a system created by the gods, uh, not the system by which they operate. Uh, I am not bound by all of the programming that I put into a computer program. You know, I'm not bound by all of the rules that I put into a D&D campaign. Uh, my creations are my creations. But I am so much more and so far less limited than the systems that I create because they are a manifestation of a piece of my creativity and not the wholeness of me. Therefore... We cannot think about mythic time, sacred time, sacred space in the same way that we do humanity. So that's that's what I go to. Ragnarok does exist, if you assume it to exist. Uh, we're going to operate from the assumption that you are supporting the Ragnarok theory at this point. If you don't, then don't worry about it. But Ragnarok has happened, is happening, and always will happen. There is a pre- and post-Ragnarok within the mythology. There's a pre and post Ragnarok tie-in energy-wise through sacred time and sacred space. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these stories. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the mythology to pull from. Um, they are prophecies for the gods. There's times pre and post within that. Uh, it, it, it's wibbly, it's wobbly, it's timey, it's wimey. That's the whole point of, of mythology is that it is blissfully nebulous which I think is one of my favorite sayings that I have said in a while. Blissfully nebulous. I love it. When you are dealing with your rituals, you can begin to think in terms of that nebulous nature with sacred time and sacred space, and it gives you some flexibility in how you build your ritual and where you focus your ritual. It gives you some power in developing your ritual to target specific energies, specific states of being, specific states in the gods' lives that you may pull more energy from, you know. Um, it's just like if someone comes to me and wants to get my, my creativity. They may come to me and bring uh, imagery of something that I find pleasurable in the form of that creative space and help get me in my creative mind. You know, if somebody wants to ask, I've got D&D on the mind lately, if somebody wants to ask me advice about a D&D campaign, they may come through and show me something cool D&D related, get my mind in in that direction, and then ask me a question about 
DMing a specific game, and then I am primed for that. Somebody may ask me a heathen question and start off with a little heathen conversation, and then I'm primed and ready to go for that. Uh, it helps tie into that piece of me, you know? You can just ask the question out of the blue. Of course you can. Absolutely you can. You may not get as good a result as you would have if you had primed the pump beforehand, and that's kind of what we're doing here when we're dealing with ritual and dealing with sacred time and sacred space. We're trying to tie into the most beneficial aspect of the god within or goddess within relation to the ritual that we are doing at the time. So we are trying to tap into some specific um, sacred time and sacred space, or just generally tapping into sacred time and sacred space. It depends on what you're shooting for, how you're going about it, and what you want your end result to be. So hopefully that answers your question, ma'am. Uh, I think that I've covered all my bases there. Um, <clears throat> I'm deciding whether I like uh, blissful, blissfully nebulous or uh, Schrodinger's God uh, <laughs> more. I don't know which of those particular sayings I'm enjoying more at this exact geeky moment, but that's where I'm going. It, yeah, anyway. So, thank you all for listening. Uh, this is a weird and random rant, but uh, I enjoyed it, so I hope you did too. Keep those questions coming. I'm definitely going to continue to use them to build future episodes, and hopefully we will have some really cool interactions. Hail to you all. Thank you. And may your hearth fires burn bright. Okay, let's try this. <laughs> all right, guys. Man, it's been a while and will a couple of weeks. So, uh, well, a week you guys <laughs> since it's just been a week since I filmed last anyway fun and games so here is the update in the whole you know whole uh, I guess post credit cutting room floor bit <laughs> um, ah, work things rocking along we're still working on the shop doing well um, there during the days and then at night I've picked up a cleaning job and so I'm cleaning out offices and uh, doing janitorial services, stuff like that, for the time being. It helps to you know, pay the bills, but it allows me to stay up here. Consequently, I should be able to continue filming at a reasonable rate, so that's fun, that's cool. We will see uh, how this plays out in the long run and uh, how well I hold up to it. Makes for long days. I usually get home about 10 or midnight at night, depending on how busy the day is. I'm still in the training period, so lip split. But anyway, so that's that's kind of that. It's rocking along. It's not bad. Uh, it's actually kind of fun. It's enjoyable. It's definitely not difficult work. I'm not going to say it's not hard work because, you know, <laughs> the sweat pouring off of me by the end of the evening is a pretty good indicator that, uh, you know, I'm keeping that heart rate up and moving, which is a good workout. So, hey, there's that. Some good cardio in running around the different facilities and doing the clean jobs. So yeah. Anyway, so that that's that's the update for that right now. We'll see how this goes. Fingers crossed. Uh, D and D is rocking along. Soon we will have another session. Uh, things had to take a real slowdown while I was working on the whole job thing, but now that that's kind of in its spot, I can schedule my next session and hopefully I will have some fun stories and stuff for you guys. Uh, playing with some really cool ideas. Uh, if you haven't looked, there's some cool articles up on D and D Beyond. Uh, there's one on the a breakdown on the oozes and a breakdown on hags. 
and how to kind of work those in. Um, with the release of Candlekeep Mysteries and with the new uh, Ravenloft, the Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, uh, giving indicators on, you know, some telling a mystery within D&D or telling more of a horror-centric focus, it's cool because they're actually coming in and exploring how you can utilize some of these monsters in a uh, setting and actually make them, you know, <laughs> more than just a mindless thing there in the dungeon. Uh, you can actually create some pretty cool stories around them. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed the stories of, like, somebody who keeps a gelatinous oob down in the basement, and that's where they throw their trash. And you just so happen, like, some grand wizard who has just, you know, he's like, eh, I don't want to mess with it. Let's put a let's put a gelatinous cube down in the in the basement and we'll feed it by throwing it stuff and uh, i've always enjoyed those kind of stories and then of course if the party accidentally finds themselves in there then all of a sudden they have to deal with this gelatinous cube one of the big issues that i've always had with the oozes is that they're all really low level and if you play at anything anything over like level five they're not particularly difficult to deal with they're more of a nuisance than anything else and once you progress to the point that you have magical weapons they don't necessarily pose that much of a threat so it's one of the things that i really enjoy about it is that you know as i'm playing with uh, fifth edition some more um, i like to go in and mod my monsters and create something that's more challenging for my players a lot of times the only thing that you have to do on that one depending on their level is just increase the life bar. Uh, usually when I pull them up, it gives you an average life bar for them. Uh, I will usually max out their hit points, but I have a larger party. There's seven players in my party, eight if uh, this other player joins, and that's cap. I'm not doing any more than that. I have done the megalithic like 12 player uh, white wolf campaign back in the day where I, I did a werewolf changing breed uh, campaign and I had literally 12, 12 or 13 active players and then upwards of 24 player characters because I let some people play multiple characters um, and of course there was some ins and outs but we had like anywhere from 15 to 18 active player active player characters at a time uh, which was always I mean it was a mega story it was amazing I loved it and it was it worked but the keeping the pacing together and everything was pretty difficult and uh, you know that's you always have somebody's somebody missing in a group that size because you can just never plan around everybody being there. So you play with who you got and you go with it. Uh, but I designed it so that it was easy to pop in and out. But anyway, with fifth edition, um, a lot of times, especially with D and D Beyond, what I'll do is I'll go in there and I will create a clone. I'll go to Homebrew Monsters and I will create a copy of whatever monster it is that I'm going to work with, and I will mod it specifically there. That way I can use it in the combat tracker with D&D Beyond. And I will go ahead and mod out their uh, their life bar. I'll mod out... I may give a creature multi-attack that didn't have multi-attack to begin with, or I may add some reactions, or I may give it legendary actions. Um, I have done that before, where I've gone through and taken what was normally a fairly decent monster modded it to fit my story and then added legendary actions onto it and given it like a lair kind of situation turned it into a legendary creature uh, even though it wasn't really a legendary creature before it is now and uh, i'll mod all of that stuff and then i'll save it in there and then when i load my combat tracker i will load my modded version of this creature and then 
it's all right there in monster block for me uh, to be able to pull up their skills and everything that I've added. So really, really handy. If you are a DM out there and you are trying to run a campaign, I highly recommend checking out D&D Beyond. Even just the free version will allow you to do a whole lot of this. And it's cool. I, I really enjoy it. It's a handy, handy tool. I know some people use uh, Roll20 and some other things. This is just kind of the way that I do. I mean, this, the tool set that I have right now that I'm using is D&D Beyond, Incarnate, and Owlbear Rodeo. And I'm enjoying using these things, even though I use Owlbear Rodeo, which is an online map thing uh, where I can load up maps. I, I've talked about it on the channel before. I can load up my local maps and it'll use, it'll host from my browser out to other devices so I can track tokens and stuff on maps that I have designed in Incarnate and then popped into Owlbear Rodeo. Uh, but we do that all in-house. I have my players sit on the couch and everything and then I throw the map up on the big TV and I run everything. Like I'll, I'll do the map and token manipulation from my iPad. Um, I'll run D&D Beyond on my laptop. I'm in multi-screen mode, so I've got the secondary screen up over there, so I'll throw Albert Rodeo up over there. I've got it up on my iPad, and I've got D&D Beyond going on the laptop, and that lets me do all of this, and then I've still got room to roll and everything like that, and I will still set up a physical grid with minis because some of my players will prefer to get up and actually look at placement in a 3D form instead of just on the map. So it gives multiple ways to look at it. And then if somebody has to miss, uh, can't be there, but would still like to be in it, or at least watch what's going on, they can pop onto the URL for Albear Rodeo and they can pull the map up on their phone, tablet, computer, whatever. And, uh, you know, it's actually designed for online play so that you can, you know, open up Zoom or Skype or something, uh, interact via that, and then utilize Albear Rodeo for your map manipulation uh, and then I just like building maps and incarnate, so I do a lot of that. But it's fun. I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, I'm, this is not the D&D podcast, so that's just some fun things. Um, with oozes, you can do the same thing. You can tweak them out, um, increase attack damage if you need to. You can increase life bar, and you can make something that is normally a very low-level creature into something that's actually challenging for a large party, uh, especially if you tweak and create your own ooze that can affect magical items and that will really mess with your players yeah i've got some cool ideas so anyway onwards and upwards let's go ahead and get to today's episode shall we all right we're live in three two one let's jam 